Good morning, everyone. So <clears throat> today's reading is from Titus 1. You can find it on page 844 of your Red Bibles. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. And at his appointed season, he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God, our Savior. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is trusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach and that for the sake of dishonest gain. Even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Let us pray before we uh, think about this passage. Our Father in heaven, we uh, do want to thank you for your word, uh, your word which is that trustworthy message that deserves full acceptance. And uh, we pray, Heavenly Father, that uh, by your spirit that you would be uh, granting us uh, uh, spiritual insight and understanding that we would indeed live lives that are worthy of you. And we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. One of the most significant factors for the spiritual health of a church is the spiritual health of its leaders. 
Now, I used to think that if I was going to open up a uh, sermon uh, with a statement like that, it would have to be a quote from some famous church leader, uh, someone who has got uh, you know, years and years of experience and uh, is well-known and popular and an author of books or whatever. But it's, it's not actually that profound, is it? Uh, in fact, it's a quote from me. <clears throat> I once said that, uh, wrote that down somewhere. And uh, it's a quote from me from just what I've seen and what I've experienced over the years of being a Christian. And I don't think I'm alone in that, am I? I think there'd be many of us here who would say the very same thing. And it makes sense, doesn't it? Uh, that if the leaders of a church are not transformed by the gospel, that if the leaders of the church are not committed to the Bible, that if the leaders of a church are not living it out in their lives, then why would we expect the congregation to be any different, to be any more healthy than that, spiritually? Now, of course, God uh, can work, uh, can be at work in people despite their leaders. Uh, but the normal way God grows healthy churches is through healthy leadership. And uh, this is not just something which we can see with our own eyes from our experience. It's also exactly what God's word says, which we would expect um, throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. Uh, the Bible teaches that, um, uh, that godly leadership is uh, fundamental for uh, the people of God. And it's especially taught in a couple of New Testament books, one of which is the uh, little New Testament book that we're commencing our series on, the, uh, the short letter which uh, Paul wrote to his friend Titus is actually, uh, it's actually really a blueprint for uh, a healthy church, uh, a blueprint um, teaching us in terms of uh, what we believe to be healthy, uh, how we should be conducting our relationships to be healthy and indeed what it means, uh, the importance of how we are led in a way which is healthy. Now, Titus, uh, if you'd like to have that open in your Bibles in front of you, uh, it's uh, sometimes a bit hard to find in your Bibles because it's a very short letter, isn't it? Uh, it's a short letter, but I've got to say, a short letter with a rather long introduction. <laughs> and uh, I, I'd have to say that um, my introductions to, uh, when I write emails these days, are getting shorter and shorter. Um, I'm boiled it down to, I might start off with, hello so-and-so, it's Scott here, I hope you're doing well, I'm writing in order to, and they tell me that that's considered a, a long introduction <laughs> these days, too much information, just get to the point, well Paul here gets to the point, uh, I want to read for you his introduction in the first four verses where he introduces himself as Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and at his appointed season, he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Saviour to Titus my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. Um, well, <clears throat> Paul didn't know about email etiquette. 
um, there. What do you reckon? There's, a, there's an entire sermon in those first four verses, isn't there? Uh, well, I'm going to be brief. <laughs> Let me try to boil it down. In short, Paul not only tells us who he is, or Titus, his friend, uh, but it also tells us about Paul's purpose. That his great concern is that God's people should know God's truth. Truth which rests on promise. The promise of eternal life. Truth which leads to, what does it say? To godliness. Truth which leads to godliness. <laughs> that in a nutshell is what Paul is on about as he writes to his friend, Titus. Imagine what he'd write to people who didn't know him. <laughs> That's to his friend, Titus. Now, we met Titus uh, last year, if you're with us in church, uh, when we looked at 2 Corinthians. And uh, you might recall from 2 Corinthians that Paul was based in Ephesus, but there were some problems that were going on in the Corinthian church. There'd been people who'd been undermining Paul's apostleship and his authority. There was division in the church. And Paul entrusted a young man, Titus, to go to Corinth to try to address these issues, to sort them out pastorally. Uh, Titus is that kind of reliable servant. And here, Titus is now ministering, uh, not in Corinth, but Titus is ministering on the island of Crete. Now, where is Crete? I've got another question. Where is the zapper for the remote control? <laughs> there is it. Where is it? On the music stand. There it is. Now, has anyone been to Crete before? Mm. No. I had a slide. All right. The slide thing is not going to work, apparently. <clears throat> uh, so we move. Anyone been to Crete? All right. Some people have been to Crete. So I've got to be careful what I say because I've never been to Crete. <laughs> but my understanding is, my understanding is that Crete is an island in the eastern part of the Mediterranean Sea. Is that right so far? And it's somewhere kind of just below Greece, uh, but it's between uh, Italy on the, on the, in the west and Israel on the east. And Crete is a, uh, somewhat of a mountainous uh, island as well. Is that correct? It's a sort of mountainous. There it is. Okay, got it. All right. You can confirm whether or not if what my memory is correct on that. I don't need to go to Crete. I'm just an armchair traveller. <laughs> but uh, there is Crete. We can see this island of Crete. And the people of Crete had a dreadful reputation. A terrible reputation. In fact, in verses 12 and 13, Paul quotes from one of their, um, one of their respected philosophers who, uh, who they had actually uh, elevated to the, um, uh, to the office of being a prophet. And uh, this is what one of their own philosophers said about Cretans. He said, and I quote, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes and lazy gluttons. And you know what? That is an assessment which Paul agrees with. <laughs> uh, because Paul, with Titus, has been to Crete. Uh, Paul and Titus visited Crete 
in order to share with the Cretans the life-changing message of the gospel. Thank you for the map. We can uh, uh, move on from that now. Thank you. They, moved, they, they went to Crete in order to share the life-changing message of the gospel. And guess what happened when they did that? Well, some, indeed quite a few, of these, uh, these liars, these evil brutes, these lazy gluttons, put their trust in Jesus, became Christians, and, and congregations, churches, little house churches, uh, were established in towns across the island of Crete. But Paul didn't just arrive in Crete, <coughs> preach the gospel, see some churches planted, and then just take off, uh, leaving the, the, these freshly minted Christians uh, to fend for themselves. He didn't do that. No, what he did was he left Titus on Crete, and he left Titus with a purpose, with a purpose. Check it out in verse 5. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So how would these churches grow to be healthy churches? And the bigger question, how would they continue into the future to be healthy, healthy churches? They needed leaders, didn't they? Godly responsible leaders to feed them and protect them. Protect them because there were some threats which were on the horizon, which we see in verse 10, uh, where we're told by Paul that there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group, they must be silenced. They must be silenced. That takes backbone to do, doesn't it? They must be silenced because they are ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach and that for the sake of dishonest gain. It's the age-old problem, isn't it? Of uh, false teachers hovering around like eagles above their prey, just waiting to swoop. And this is what made it so important to have properly appointed elders uh, in the, the churches of every town. Because when you don't have properly appointed leadership, what happens? You have a vacuum of leadership. And self-appointed leaders emerge to fill the void. Now, they may be godly leaders or not. <laughs> they may be the false teachers. Or they may be people who just fancy themselves as, as, as leaders for the sake of their own egos. And what it seems here, from here and from the other passages that I've listed for you in your outlines is that when Paul says that he's left Titus there to appoint elders in every town, it's not just like one elder per town, per, ch per church in each town, but rather um, uh, a plurality of elders, more than just one elder in each church, which of course also makes sense, doesn't it? That uh, authority and responsibility uh, should not fall on the shoulders of one person, but might be shared by a group of elders. 
uh, which is true of the leadership um, in this church. Uh, we don't have um, one person who is the leader and that's it. Um, recently, uh, last week in fact, I invited, I got talking with one of the men doing the road work um, after church. A lovely guy, had a really good conversation with him and we started talking about the Lord and um, <laughs> I said to him, look, uh, you're welcome to come to church one Sunday if you're not you know, digging up roads. <laughs> come to church. And I, I said to him, yeah, and, uh, you don't have to be able to spell the word Presbyterian in order to get in. <laughs> That's just as well for us, isn't it? <laughs> but there is something uh, to be said about the word. There is something in, in the name. Uh, it, it comes from a Greek word, uh, the word um, presbyteros or presbyteroi in the plural, which means elders, elders. <laughs> that's, that's a funny thing to name your church after the fact that you're, 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 you're led by elders, but that's what it means. And what it means is that rather than being a church which is led by just one person, uh, or alternatively, um, to be a church which is led by everybody in the congregation, and some churches are led by that, everybody in the congregation leads the church. Rather than that, we are a church which is led by a group of appointed elders, of which the minister is just one amongst equals. Uh, though usually theologically trained and freed from the responsibility of earning an income in another job. And so what therefore are the qualities that Titus should look for in an elder for the sake of the spiritual health of the churches? Well, verse 6, an elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Now, I think it's easy when we're thinking about who would be a good leader to think about the, um, the naturally born leader, the person with the, uh, the big personality, and to think that that person, the person who's full of uh, personality, is the right person to be a leader. Uh, it may not hurt to have personality, by the way, but what are the qualities of an elder here? An elder, we're told, must be blameless. Because it's not about charisma. It's about character. It's about character. And in what arena of life is someone's character uh, often revealed um, a little bit more so than in other areas of life? Um, how about the home? How about in family life? In a man's relationship with his wife and with his children? Now, not all church leaders are married. Um, Paul wasn't. Um, Titus probably wasn't. Jesus was not married. But if an elder is married, in verse 6, he must be the husband of but one wife. Now, how is that relevant? I mean, it's not exactly the case that polygamy is rife in our society and culture today. But adultery is. 
flirting is, crossing boundaries in relationships are. But a leader of God's people is to be a one-woman kind of man. There's a lot which could be said about that, but that's the principle. And if he has children, well, how well does he lead his children? Well, in verse 6, his children are to believe, or could be translated as uh, be faithful, and not be wild and disobedient. Now, a, uh, a minister friend of mine once told me that he was uh, spoken to by someone in his church who told him that he should resign from being a minister because his, his adult children had walked away from the Lord. But this is about the parenting of young children. Uh, does he invest time into his children, loving them, teaching them the word of God, establishing boundaries and an appropriate discipline? Or is it just a free-for-all at his place? Can his wife trust him? Do his children respect him? It's important. Because in verse 7, an elder, we're told, is an overseer who is entrusted with the work of God, uh, which can be translated as he is, a, um, uh, he is an overseer who is a manager of God, a steward of God's household. Uh, in fact, in another passage in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Paul spells this, this out that if he cannot manage his own household, then how can he manage the household of God? And this makes sense because the church is like a family. And what we see here is that leadership in the family is important uh, for, the le for leadership in the church. As church leadership also models family leadership. And just as in passages such as uh, Ephesians chapter 5 and Colossians chapter 3, a husband is to take sacrificial responsibility for his family. And so too are godly men responsible for leading God's household. Now, I realise that this is not the culture uh, these days, um, that men have that um, particular role of leadership. But it's not just, it wasn't just cultural in the first century either. Um, in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, when Paul uh, speaks about these issues again, he grounds the, the, the difference between men and women, um, not in culture, but actually in creation, in the order of creation. Um, this is a sensitive topic, I know. Um, we have preached on it uh, numerous times before here in church, and those sermons are available online. Um, next week in chapter 2, we'll touch on it again as the passage deals uh, to some extent with the relationship between a husband and a wife. And also, if this is something which is a concern to you, I would be very, very happy um, to speak with you about it and to share with you more 
and to listen to you as well. But can I say this? It's my observation over many years that Christian families enjoy better spiritual health when the husband, the father, steps up to the mark and fulfills his responsibility of spiritual leadership in the home. And these are the kind of men needed to lead God's family as well. Men of godly character. Well, let's move, have a look at that in verse 7. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. Not overbearing or quick-tempered. Um, I remember being in a ministry planning meeting once uh, where one of the uh, leaders just bullied everybody into submission. <laughs> bullied everyone to make the decisions that he wanted. It wasn't me, by the way. Um, but he was, he was a friend, and I have to say I had a productive chat with him about that later. Um, he soon after that left full-time Christian ministry. But the issue here is that how leaders treat others with humility, love and respect is more important than whether the best possible decision is made. Because what are we on about? Uh, what, what Christian leadership is about truth that leads to godliness. It's about leading others in godliness and honouring God in the process. And therefore, in verse 7, an elder must not be given to drunkenness, violence or dishonest gain. Uh, one commentator I read said that, uh, well, these were obviously bigger problems for the um, people in Crete in the first century. Uh, they were uh, evil brutes, lazy and gluttons and all that sort of thing and liars. Um, but uh, less relevant for us because we wouldn't really consider appointing someone like that to the eldership. Really? The danger is that we could. That we could because... Because someone is gifted uh, and enthusiastic and, and available, or even just pushy, we can sometimes be tempted to turn a blind eye. Paul says no. Instead, in verse 8, uh, Paul says, choose the one who is hospitable. He actually opens up his home because he cares for people. Go for the one who is good and upright and holy. Appoint men who are self-controlled and disciplined because it's not about charisma, it's about character. And character which flows from his commitment to the word of God. Verse 9, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Now, what is this trustworthy message? Well, how about um, 
Uh, how about this one, uh, where Paul says in another passage, here is a trustworthy message that deserves full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the trustworthy message. And that is the message that an elder must hold... How do I describe this? Well, I, I remember once playing with a little dog and a rope. And uh, <clears throat> the little dog loved the rope. And she sunk her teeth so firmly into that rope that even when I pulled the rope up and in high, she was just dangling by her teeth. But she, she was committed to the rope. It's the sort of commitment that an elder must have to the word of God. And for two reasons. Firstly, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine. Feed my sheep, says the Lord Jesus Christ. The encourage others by sound doctrine through preaching. Uh, not all elders preach. I preach, Benjamin preaches, Peter preaches, Andrew has preached from time to time as well. But to encourage others by sound doctrine, as I'm doing now, uh, and also through, uh, through small group um, uh, involvement and leadership and one-on-one -on -one instruction. You ought to be able to talk to an elder to be fed God's word. Because ultimately, how is God's church led? God's church led. It's not ultimately led by people sitting around, in a, around a, a table making decisions. It's ultimately it's led by God's word, by the preaching and the teaching of God's word. And secondly, he must be committed to the trustworthy message so that he can refute false teaching. Having that clarity of mind and the courage to stand up to and to correct and to rebuke, to rebuke and correct false teachers like those who are hovering around in Crete uh, checking out their prey. And something which uh, we do here in our church regularly in small ways uh, in a big way it was something which we had to do uh, in this church when we had people in the church who had physicians who rejected the Bible as God's word that's not a problem now is it you know why it's not a problem now because we held, had some elders back then uh, who held firmly to the truth and refuted those who didn't. The false teachers in Crete, they were teaching that faith in Christ plus circumcision was necessary for salvation. And in verse 11, they were ruining whole households, drawing people away from the gospel of grace, away from Jesus. And so what did these uh, newly planted churches need? They needed duly appointed godly elders. And that's why uh, we've uh, given some forms to you today. Because we're commencing that process. And in that process, 
uh, it's, it's our desire as an eldership that we get input from the congregation. Um, your thoughts about who in the church uh, would fulfil these qualifications and be helpful in our church. Once we receive those, the session uh, will give careful and prayerful examination of the life and the doctrine of people. So we might come down to a short list, a short list, who we would then approach, speak to them about it. And if they're interested in, in that role, we would interview them and we would work through uh, with uh, each person the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is a significant doctrine, a uh, document of doctrine, which is the doctrine of our church. It's how our church understands the Bible. And it's the doctrinal position which every elder in the Presbyterian Church must commit themselves to. It's a serious issue because it's about the health of the church. And in our uh, Presbyterian churches, eldership is not a, um, it's not a one-year term or a five-year term. It's actually potentially for life, for life, so that elders can commit themselves to the congregation over a long period of time. Um, the last time we went through this full process, it uh, resulted in uh, Tim and Andrew being appointed to the eldership. They're good appointments, aren't they? That was 10 years ago. And I'm glad, I'm glad for their faithful and their continued service. Uh, Ray Dunlop, well, <laughs> Ray is 94 and contributing very, very well um, with great wisdom on the session, the eldership of our church. Uh, although Ray's been saying to me lately, Scott, the spirit is willing, <laughs> but the flesh, she's getting a bit weak. <laughs> 94, 94. It's a good thing, isn't it? That long-term service. But what it also says, you've got to be really, really careful who you appoint. And that's why we're engaging in this process of consultation and uh, then considerable deliberation before we would then uh, present to you some names where we would say, give you the opportunity for anyone, you any reason to object to those names before we would move to the next step. It's important, it's important it's important that our eldership would continue to lead us well. So we would not only be healthy now, but that we would be healthy well into the future. Because as one not so famous person once said, one of the most significant factors for the spiritual health of a church is the spiritual health of its leaders. So will you join with me in prayer? Father, we thank you for your wisdom uh, that uh, you don't uh, simply allow uh, your 
people to be savaged by wolves or to, uh, uh, to be led astray, but, uh, Father, that uh, you lead your people. You lead your people through your word. You lead your people through your spirit. You lead your people through duly appointed godly elders in every church. We do pray for our eldership that they would continue to be men of great um, faith and godliness, uh, that they would continue to hold firmly to the trustworthy message that's been delivered. Father, we pray for this process that you would guide us all as we seek to uh, consider um, uh, appointing more uh, onto the eldership for the ongoing um, benefit and health of our church. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And by the way, <clears throat> uh, we're not doing this because Ray's turning 94. <laughs> Ray, do not get any ideas. <laughs>